This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. Sonar! and welcome to the Bedpost Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Erin Pym, and I'm the producer of the theatrical variety show, The Bedpost Sex Show. Here at the podcast, I invite guests and performers from the stage show and beyond to indulge me in a more in-depth conversation about sex and sexuality. This week, I have a really, really, really special guest, (laughs) writer, performer, and occasional sex worker, Andrea Warehead, everybody! What? <laughs> hey, girl, hey. Hi. How do you do? Oh, I do. Oh, I do. Oh, I do. Oh, I do. I do. Yes. So nice to have you here. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Oh, oh, something we should mention is that this is, we're recording the 100th, 100th. One hundo. One hundo episode of the Bedpost Podcast, which is crazy. What, 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 what? We are dancing and it's fun. We are fun and we are dancing. (laughs) And I wanted you to do it. I wanted you to be on this episode. Oh, man, because you are just killing it right Mm now. No, thank you. Maybe I am. <laughs> I feel bashful about it, but I thank you. No, maybe. You're killing it. Oh, you. You're at 100. It's fucking incredible. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. It's so funny. I still feel like I'm... I, I don't It doesn't feel like that long that yeah. I've been doing it that long. But that's a but, testament to your oh. uh, um, ability and that... You're still interested in learning, and you're growing, and you're only going to get better from here, so it's fucking awesome. Thanks, girl. That is true. I feel like I, every guest I have on, you know, every day's a school day, right? <laughs> and there's still so much to talk about. Like, that, I guess that's what I mean by I don't feel like it's been that long, because there's still so much I, more I want to do, and more people I want to talk to, more topics I want to cover, so yeah, up and up. Up, up, and away. You're doing great. Oh. You're killing it. <laughs> Not about me. No, what okay. about you? Oh. Andrea. I'm sick of talking about I me. know you probably are, right? <laughs> because I, yeah. for people who, you know, when they hear Andrea Warehun, they might not know. You're coming out with a crazy, amazing, fantastically slutty memoir. Oh, yeah. Called Modern Modern Horror. (laughs) It's the only way it should be said. Yeah, you can't, you have to sing it. Yes. (laughs) Lowest baritone possible. Yeah, yeah, just. Oh, Andrea, like, this journey's been long, hey? Yeah. Like, even the journey that I'm aware of with this piece has been long. It's been a long journey. Like, the whole time I've known you. Yeah. Essentially, you've been constructing this. Yeah. Right? It's been... So, we've been working on the book for more than three years. And it's been... Like, I started escorting five years ago. So, I... 
five years ago I started, I worked for two years, and then when I finished, Nicole and I decided we wanted to make a book. Yep. So that was three years, and now we're here. So and now you're like... finally going to release it in November. Yeah. Sometime in November. Yeah. Let's start at the beginning. Let's start way back in the beginning, shall we? Let's go. Let's, Let's take go. a trip. Let's take a journey. <laughs> what, kind of a, what kind of a like teenager were you? Were oh you crazy? God. Um, I was a very horny teenager. Yeah, yeah, like, me too. Oh, me too. Deeply horny. Oh, me too. I got to high school and I was like, I'm here to fuck. <laughs> grade nine, I'm 13 years old, I'm ready I'm to red, fuck. I'm DTF. I'm so DTF. Like, oh, first week too. of school I made out with a guy in the stairwell. Great. I actually bumped into him recently and I was like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, you. You, I remember <laughs> your green spacers between the your teeth and, and the fact that you like grabbed had one hand on my tit and one hand on my butt, and we kissed, and it was disgusting. You had terrible breath, and it was like, <laughs> I cannot ever do this again. This is, this is fun once. But. I thought you were going to say it was disgusting, like like sickening, like sickeningly hot. Like, <laughs> that's what I thought you were going to say. Uh, no, no, no. No, it was just disgusting. No, it was like... It was actually uh, disgusting. It was actually disgusting, yeah. But you, you, you were... like a frog. But anyway, <laughs> I, don't know. Um, I dated a guy for like on and off for like three years to look like a frog. So, <laughs> girl, I get it. Um, no, yeah, but me too. It it like um, was the center of my life. Yeah, sex. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I not long after that got myself a boyfriend. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I got him, and uh, you got I him. Just turned fourteen. He had come to my birthday party. And uh, we'd made out at my party, mm-hmm. and he was at my house, and a bunch of people there. And at one point I was like, um, are we boyfriend and girlfriend now? And he was like, I guess so. He was two years older than me. He was mm-hmm. in grade 11. And uh, from there, we went on, like, like we took each other's virginities yep. pretty quickly. Yep. Um, and then we were on wild escapades. In public, like, fucking in ravines. Yeah. We fucked on the subway. Wow. Uh, the Toronto subway? The Toronto subway. The TTC. I on the TTC. The spirit of me fucking... Well, Cesar Ginocchio. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out. Shout out Great to times. <laughs> he was pretty... I mean, for a 16-year-old, he was pretty good Not at sex. Bad. But as a 14-year-old, I was also very good. <laughs> oh, this is so disturbing. But, um... Yeah, like, we went to a Catholic school, and I would come to school 14 years old with no panties on. Yeah. Just because it would excite me. Like, yeah. Like, I'm fucking wet right now. Like, <laughs> I love this. Just for no reason. No just, reason. Like, I... Just wet all the time. Or, like, I would flash him in the hallways, <laughs> like, that kind of thing. Like, I was a very dirty girl. Yeah. And I even before I had sex, I had friends who had had sex, and they were like, you have not had sex, but you already know, like, everything about sex. Mm-hmm. Like, when you... Were you a sex geek? In a way. Yeah. Like, I was looking at porn at a very early age. Me too, yeah. 10 years old. Yeah. On the computer. We'd gotten, like, a family computer, and then I just fucking... What type? What bonnet? I went ape. I was like getting up in the middle of the night when nobody was awake and like looking at porn online. Like, what is this? What's this buzzing between my legs? I have to touch my vagina, (laughs) and then it just like spiraled from there. What type of porn do you remember? I the first pornographic video I remember was actually a solo masturbation vid of a woman uh, fucking herself with a dildo. Mm -hmm. Um. I remember that the floor was carpeted. I could see she lived in an apartment. 
and and she was just like squatting on the dildo. Yeah. And that's the first time I remember masturbating to porn. Nice. I know. I know. I'm glad it was that and not something like really, really disturbing. Uh, yeah, my like early, early, like probably 12, 13, I was looking at gaping assholes. I fucking <laughs> yeah. love that shit. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah I was there. <laughs> and uh, there were like, there wasn't a lot of. I don't know. I couldn't just find like full videos of anything. So I'd like go on a website and you know how they had like a 10 second like clip preview clip of what the porn was going to be like. So I'd watch just like all the preview clips, like, like 10 seconds, 10 seconds, 10 seconds. Cause they had like a dozen for each girl that was on the website. Right. So I'd go and just watch all those preview clips like again and again. Just cobble, cobble them together. Yeah, I know. Find some editing software that I could have, like, <laughs> somehow strung them all together to get a full experience. But, yeah. And another thing I used to do when I was super young was chat. Go in a, a chat <gasps> room. Too. A chat Me room. Too. When I was, like, 12, oh, 14. Yeah. I was, I think I was, like, again, grade four was when we got, like, our computer. computer and that's, we had Napster yeah. on our computer. And, uh... I would go in the chat rooms on Napster, and I would talk to people, and obviously the first question they're they're asking is ASL. Yeah. So I'd always pretend to be older. Yeah. And engage in these, like, weird uh, sexual conversations with strangers. Yeah. And find it really funny. Yeah. Like, I am unbuckling your belt with my teeth. Yeah. I remember somebody saying that to me. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I think I get this, and then I'd be able to respond <laughs> Like, I actually, I have kind of, like, a crazy history on the internet. Yeah. I've, I've, th- I've thought about writing about it. Yeah. Because, you know, the internet done raised me. Yes. Sexually. In a lot of ways. Like, my sexuality and my humor totally crafted and molded by the internet. Yeah. And getting it at, like, 10 years old. But you know what's interesting? What? Is we are, like, we're the last generation of people. That grew up. Without. Without it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, pre-10 years old, I do remember this idyllic time of, of not having the internet. And not knowing, like, what is sex? I want it, but what is it? And who will... When can I... That was pr- part of maybe my obsession with why I was so crazy about sex at a young age was because I wanted it and couldn't have any access to anything sex-related for so long. And it was like, then finally you got a family computer. And the world was your oyster. And it's like, oh, baby, this is what I've been waiting for. Like, yeah. And then it just exploded for me. Yeah. So much of my early childhood was spent talking to people online about sex about sex yeah I remember my first um one of my first experiences I got uh a blue clitted Uh (laughs) from someone (laughs) like where they had gotten off and then just logged right out and I was like and I was like (gasps) I was so like that like shook me I was like and then then it kind of I think that dropped in the perspective dropped in of like okay that person's like just here to fucking get off as well and that's it right and it was like oh that's what this is I think that really dropped in for me (laughs) it's so I I have so many memories of webcamming yeah at an early age really Yeah, 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 yeah 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 I was I mean I wasn't exactly on the most like uh child-friendly forums right as yes a, as a kid 
and not that I ever felt like I experienced um, abuse or anything on those uh, forums, but the thing was that I actively pretended to be older than I was. Oh, me too. Actively. And and I actually think that plays a really big role in my, um, my ability to write. Yeah. Because I was always writing as if I were older. Mm-hmm. And in a way that gave me the ability to be more mature through writing when I couldn't physically pass as older than mm. 11 or 12 years old. You were adulting through your writing. I was writing. adulting through writing. And yeah. Oh my God. I This is like a whole thing. That's very interesting. <laughs> That's very interesting. I, yeah, we didn't have a camera on my computer when I was that young, but I for sure wanted one. Oh yeah. No, me too. I <laughs> to remember take like, this shit to the next level. I, yeah, I remember like fighting for one where my mom was like, I don't see why it's necessary. I was like, mom, it's really necessary. I need it. I have to have it. And can you imagine now every fucking computer has a camera built in. It's right. like, Ooh boy, dangerous. Oh my God. It's so crazy. But that's, that's, Fucking how p- young people know about sex and learn about sex and experience sex mm-hmm. at a young age now. It's like, it's crazy. It is. It's a, I think fundamentally it's hard as adults to put ourselves in the position of being preteens. Yeah, a sexual kid, essentially. Sexual kids. Because kids are sexual. Definitely. Young, very young kids. Yeah. Children are, are, it's, it's, it's your, a part of you. Always. Always, yeah. Yeah. So, and obviously it's taboo to talk about... Yeah, like when I Kids about- and sex. Anything where kids and sex come together, it's like, no, it's, don't talk about it. So taboo. Yeah. Doesn't exist. Deny, deny. Yeah. But when I think about that freedom and excitement I felt as a 14-year-old grade 9 girl running around the school without underwear on under my kilt... Yeah. I was very happy... Yeah. I was a very happy girl. Yeah. Going commando with my kilt. You know what? The only time for me that then so much shame came to me yeah. because like once teachers, my parents got into the mix about it, then like so much shame, like like extreme extreme shame about it mm-hmm. set in for me for like yeah, like most of high school. Because oh. in grade nine, same thing. I was like, down to fuck. Like, <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> fuck. And and then, yeah, just like shut it. Like the man essentially like just shut it down for me. Yeah. And then I actually didn't start experiencing pleasurable sexual experiences, even with myself, for a very long time after that. I, I understand that yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, okay, so... so that's teen Andrea. A sexual teen Andrea. <laughs> yeah, so then really where it progresses from there is that, like, I was aware of my sexuality. I was aware of the way people looked at me because I grew tits this size at 10 years old. Wow, yeah. So, like, I was very familiar by the time I got to high school and beyond. With being a sexual... Yes, and being perceived sexually as well. Even if that was not how I always perceived myself, I was always aware that people looked at me that way because of my tits and um eventually I started working um I think one of the first jobs I had was when I was 17 working at um a cafe downtown Mm -hmm. sure um and I was a barista and I remember 
I remember realizing that like if I smiled at a customer and I like maybe made a joke and it was coupled with a little bit of a, a booby shake. Yeah. You know? Or like an a little straight in the posture. Straight in the tits posture. Tits up and out. Or like, you know, maybe lean down and give him his change type of thing. Uh, that could be very salient. Oh, yeah. It, it translated into tips is what I, I realized. And I didn't have like a concept for thinking of sex work at that time. But I just remember being aware that... No matter what I was doing, like, sexuality was driving my success to an extent, especially in customer service. Yes. That my my beauty and my attractiveness, which includes my sense of humor and my personality, along with my physical form, made people, compelled people to give me more money. Yeah. And I found that very interesting. And then uh, university rolled around. And uh, I knew some people who, like, it was, it was one particular moment where this, this girl I was in a class with, she said she'd, she'd gone to uh, Zanzibar mm-hmm. with a few of her friends. A strip club. A strip club. And she was like, oh my god, like, the women didn't look like they wanted to be there. They looked miserable. Like, it's so disgusting there. And the men are gross. And, like, the women look like they want to kill themselves. It's, like, the worst place ever. And I remember thinking about what she was saying. Like, I remember the, the, the place, the time, the place where she said that. And it hit me like, well, I've never been to a strip club. I don't know these things for sure. Now I'm curious. I want to see if she's right. And so I was 20 and I was hanging out with a friend. We were in the East End. We were drinking in a park. We're smoking weed. Classic 20s. Classic 20-year-old. Yeah. Also, I still do exactly the same <laughs> things now. <laughs> I am not above drinking and smoking weed in parks. Um, but we were walking uh, down Broadview, and we started talking about strip clubs. And he's like, well, Jilly's is right over there. You want to go? Yeah. You want to Qu- go to Jilly's? Queen in Broadview. Queen in Broadview. And I was like, holy fuck. Yes, let's go. Let's totally go. And I remember walking in, and it looked like it had the decor of an old glow-in-the-dark bowling alley. (laughs) Like, black light and, like, the same kind of carpeting. And we sat down. And have you ever been? Did you go to Jilly's before? I I had never been to Jilly's, unfortunately. Yeah, it was such an interesting stage. It actually kind of reminded me of, like, a elementary school uh, auditorium stage auditorium like that was you know sometimes it would be in a in a gymnasium or it would be in the cafeteria but where the cafetorium cafetorium (laughs) um (laughs) where the stage is inset in the wall yeah so it was like that it was like they were in a box interesting inside the wall and there were two poles and it was just that it was a very simple box structure um and we sat down, and the woman on stage was smiling. She was, like, she looked like she was having a great time. The move she was pulling off on that pole required strength and grace. And I thought to myself, you can't hate your life that much and hate yourself and hate what you're doing and be at your very lowest point in your life and be that good at what you do. Yeah, and create this art. Yes, because she was an artist up there. Like, she was... I was floored by the beauty. And I thought, holy shit, this is is a place dedicated to naked dancing women. 
Yeah. This brings people joy. Yeah. She is full of joy. I can see that. You know, okay, I don't know her everyday life. Sure. I don't know anything about her. I don't know whether she's happy or not. But I could see that she respected the craft. Mm-hmm. And that alone, and, the, and what she was able to bring to me as an audience member, yeah. I was... it was a performance, and you were an, an audience member enjoying that performance. So I, at that strip club, at Jilly's, experienced what I would call a conversion. Because, I mean, granted, yes, I'm stoned and I'm drunk. But I'm looking around and I'm like, wait a second. Ain't nothing wrong with this. This is this is a priest at a pulpit. This is, you look at a, around at, at the, the congregation mm-hmm. and there are men who are so smitten by this uh, performance that they want private time with that dancer. Mm-hmm. They want to go to confession mm-hmm. with that dancer. <laughs> And they are willing to pay $20 a song for that luxury mm-hmm. and for that privilege. And so I'm sitting there thinking, like, this is just, this is the, the temple of the goddess. Mm-hmm. This is, like, literally feminine divinity being worshipped yeah. in our own culture. But it's still considered so dark mm-hmm. and, and evil. And, and it's considered anti-feminist. Exactly. Sex which, work. It's very, very interesting to me because when you break it down to beautiful, naked, dancing women, what the fuck is wrong with that? There is nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. That is joy embodied. And I I just, like, I really, truly felt like a seed was planted in me in that experience. And I, like, I practically ran home and looked up, like, stripper experiences like okay what's it actually like and then I thought okay I need to get a job at a strip club so I can get closer to these dancers and then I became kind of obsessed with going to strip clubs and I would like go with anyone who ever wanted to go mm-hmm. and uh I remember I was at Brass Rail and I was watching a particular dancer and like something shook inside me and I was like I, I don't have to I don't want to be close to these dancers I want to be a dancer I want to be up on stage. I want to be performing and dancing and naked and loving what I'm doing and inspiring the people in the crowd. Mm-hmm. Because if you go to strip clubs, some places, if the if the performer is like really engaged in what she's doing, and it's not difficult to look engaged, mm-hmm. um, and it's certainly obvious when someone's not engaged in what they're doing, but when they're engaged and they look like they're having fun, they get a round of applause from the audience. Mm-hmm. They're there. They want to be entertained. Mm-hmm. And that turned me on so, so much. Mm-hmm. So I became obsessed. Um, and then... Did you have a performance background of any kind at that point? Um, I'd been in high school plays. Yeah. I'd been in one university play. Yeah. I think at that point, maybe I was like... I was possibly singing songs with my favorite band at Grossman's Tavern. <laughs> They'd like let me get up on stage. So I had a bit of experience being on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think I knew at that point that I wanted to be a performer. Mm-hmm. So to me that seemed quite natural. Mm-hmm. But then like there, there just seemed to be certain barriers in my way to actually becoming a stripper. For one thing, there's a license, which at the time was $300, and I never had enough money to scrounge up to pay it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was taking classes. I went to Brass Vixens, and mm-hmm. I started doing pole classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I bought stripper shoes mm -hmm. to start walking around in my house with to get mm -hmm. comfortable with. I started crafting um, a playlist. Routines. Yeah. Routines. Mm -hmm. Like trying to find those songs that really made me feel sexy. Yeah. Um, and They just wanted to move too. Yeah. yeah. And how natural that felt for me. But then I, I started talking to people about it and how I wanted to be a stripper. Mm -hmm. And like these weird people came out of the woodwork. Mm. It was, I think it was like three people around the same time who all said, well, why don't you try escorting instead? Really? Yeah. That's not what I thought you were going to say. Yeah, I wasn't expecting it either. I was, I, it was, it floored me. And basically they all said the same thing. They were like, it's more private. Mm -hmm. You make more money and you're better protected. You don't run the risk of having like an elementary school teacher walk in, mm -hmm. you know, nobody has to know that you're doing it. Right. It's completely private. It's very discreet. Yeah. Discreet is the word. Yeah. And for me, I was like, more discreet. Well, I want to perform. Mm. That's what I want to do. I don't, I don't want this to be private. I want to be, you know, fucking in front of a room. I want to, I want to <laughs> feel that room with me. That energy. Yeah. And then what happened was at the time I was taking a creative writing course and at U of T and the first story I'd, I'd written for that class um it was called Body of Knowledge um and it was about a girl who had met a guy on the bus and he invited her to like a a sort of symposium discussion at his apartment later that night and she's unsure but she decides to go and while she's there she goes into the kitchen and she sees a glass floor and below she sees herself as a prostitute servicing a client and she watches and then she's like totally in raptures and she she tries to get her her own attention basically mm -hmm. and and sort of meet that person and eventually by the end of the story they do get to like come face to face and talk to each other wow and the main character leaves in the end of the story is tonight i met a woman mm -hmm. and i wrote this months before I'd ever, ever considered escorting. And wow. I remember I read it. It was in there. I read it and I was like, holy fucking shit. And it was like you meeting you. It was like me meeting me. It was like, I've wanted to do this for a long time. And it was a very powerful moment because I had another friend uh, who was like, you know, some people don't have a clear view into their unconscious, mm -hmm. but you had a glass floor <laughs> looking directly at yourself. Mm -hmm. some part of yourself that was already in development. You know, mm -hmm. most people have to scrape the grime off, off the floor to ever get a, a look inside. Mm -hmm. and, and it was there. And I wrote that story. And I love the symbolism of, okay, I love the glass floor. Cause when I picture a glass floor, I picture seeing up someone's skirt. Okay. And I picture you're seeing into your sexuality by looking down, like at a mirror that's on the floor in between your legs, right. you looking down and seeing up into your own sexuality. That that image is in my head. Yeah, it's it's intense. And then a lot of my friends were like, "Oh, I really liked how you played with the symbolism of the glass ceiling." Yeah, that too. That and was the other the thing. I had no idea what the glass ceiling was. Mm -hmm. I was like, "What's the glass ceiling?" And they were like, "What? <laughs> you didn't?" It's like, no, you know what it is. <laughs> no, yeah, you do. You just. Don't have a name for it. Yeah. But <laughs> we all know what it is. In a way, the story is about crushing that, that ceiling and, uh, and meeting 
meeting above the ceiling so that it becomes the floor, you mm-hmm. know, I guess until you yeah, get the next ceiling. You're on top of it. Yeah. You're on top of the glass ceiling. It's now the floor. So, That's fucked. It's so nuts. And like after that, I got so spooked about writing <gasps> stories because I realized how <laughs> intensely personal it is. How, like what, what parts of myself I was tapping into when I, I felt like I was just unconsciously generating an idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I started to play with it a little bit more. Like I did a... I, none of this is published but like mm-hmm. I've I started working with my dreams like I'd have a dream and yeah a dream as, journal like, yeah I always kept a dream journal yeah, like, yeah, since yeah. I was a teenager and one of the, the exercises I was doing for myself was like I would take a dream mm-hmm. and then I would write a story mm-hmm. around the dream to give that dream context mm-hmm. and when I started doing that like creepy things started happening and like coming up yeah and like it was almost as if my dreams were giving me tasks. Like, it became, like, very, very real. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy stuff. Yeah, following your dreams, because you can, you're, by following your dreams, you're already uh, manipulating them, right? Because you're putting focus on them. Like, yeah, I had, uh, this is going to be off topic, but yeah, I, I dreamt about this, like, guy in, like, grade seven that I just wanted to fuck so badly. Um and then, like, 20 years later, I suddenly had a dream about him. His name is, his name is Darren Shock, everybody. Shock. <laughs> Shocker. Shock. Um, hey, Darren, where are you? <laughs> Call me. Um, and, uh, and then, like, 20 years later, he just popped up in a dream. And then uh, I was like, oh, my God, Darren Shock. And then the next night I had a dream about him. And then I would write it down. Like erotic stories. Yeah. Uh, that was like kind of the birth of me writing erotica. Wow. And then a couple days later, I'd have another dream about him. And then I'd write that. You know what I mean? So like he was so entrenched in my subconscious and conscious mind at that point that I was just like pumping out these like erotic dreams with Darren Shaw. <laughs> But like, and that's that was the birth of your erotic writing. Uh, essentially, yeah, me dream journaling about what uh, me dreaming about this guy. Oh, I fucking love went this to school. So with. Much I love it so much. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like even this is a subject. Like I'd love to delve into the way dreams, <laughs> dreams inspire us to actually um, go after the things that we want to do and maybe are meant to do. Yeah, yeah. because like me realizing that in some way. I'd always wanted to be a whore was like a very shocking revelation to me because on the one hand I was really excited, but on the other hand, I was afraid. So scared. I was so afraid. I I had no idea what that meant for me and what this, I felt like I was on a whore journey at this point. A whore's journey. Yeah. The (laughs) journey of whoredom. The journey of whoredom. Yeah. I was on a path and I didn't know where it was leading and it was terrifying. Yeah. We gotta take a break, Adrian. Oh my god. I don't want to, but we gotta. Let's take a super quick break. We'll get our... I, I'm honestly like, like, I'm like, I got like chills, goosebumpy things happening right now. I'm gonna go shake it off and we'll be right back with Ms. Andrea Warehun. This episode has been brought to you by the worker owners of Come As You Are. Come As You Are has the peculiar distinction of being the world's only worker-owned cooperative sex shop. With feminist and anti-capitalist values, Come As You Are only carries sexuality products that they truly believe in at the lowest price possible. 
Enter coupon code BEDPOST when you check out at comeasyouare.com to receive a 15% discount. And don't forget that shipping on orders over $50 is free in Canada. That's B-E-D-P-O-S-T when you visit comeasyouare.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the BedPost Podcast. We're back with Andrea Warehun. Hi. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. It's me. It's just me. It's talking about <laughs> sex and stuff. <laughs> Did you ever do phone sex work? No. Phone sex, just in general? Done a little phone sex. A little Not here and there. Occasional phone sex worker. <laughs> no. Yes, always. I'm always occasionally something. Yeah, occasionally, yeah, occasionally everything. Yeah. Um, we thought we should make mention that you have done the podcast before. Yes, I have. You're on episode 13. We just looked it up. And you're in the closet as a sex worker at that point. Yeah, if you want to hear a sex worker in the closet trying to talk about sex Sex work. work. Yeah, trying to talk about sex. Yeah, go listen to episode 13 because it's like I was jumping through hoops trying to not say, oh, also, I'm a sex worker. And why I know all this is because... I'm not just a sex work researcher. Oh, I know. At one point you're like, through my research... (laughs) (laughs) But I felt felt for you because I I think... um, Actually, we did have a conversation of whether you wanted to actually come out um, on that podcast or not. And at one point you were like, yes, I do want to. Let me think on it. And then you're like, I've at this point, I just feel more. Well, you tell me. You tell me. I think at the time I actually, I had just gotten like a, a straight job, like a salaried job. Yeah. And I was, I was terrified of them finding out. That's part of the the sex sex work shame. Because, yes. yeah, I wasn't sex working at the time. I had long finished mm. it at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I'd gotten this, like, important job yeah. in an office. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And you couldn't come out as a sex worker. I was so terrified. It was... It, oh, man. So I, it's so weird to think back on those, those years of keeping it a secret. And even, like, me talking about it publicly and knowing, like, eventually I'm going to come out with it and doing your the interview with you and tiptoeing around the subject oh my god so it was painful that was a very painful period I can imagine but I did eventually come out to my employers to those employers yeah that you got that job the one when we recorded before yeah yeah I did and uh, interesting how was it received they didn't care but I was also not very good at my job <laughs> so they're they, like we could take you or leave you, like, quite frankly <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. They're like, we don't really care. Can you just, like, get better at answering emails faster? <laughs> just, just be better. But it, I don't care. It felt... the Part of why it's so painful to keep a secret like that, at least for me, was that uh, it really felt like a core part of my identity. Mm. And I think, as evidenced by this, the, the way I got into sex work, which sounds very unconventional, but I, I'm sure there are other people who have entered sex work under similar conditions where they just feel it in themselves. Like, uh, I think this is just a part of who I am. Mm-hmm. It's like, because it felt like fate in a lot of ways, like I'd, I'd predicted it in a story I wrote, I, it just, it feels like a fundamental part of who I am. And f- for me, I'm very used to just being myself Mm -hmm. and when I feel like I have to hide a fundamental part of myself it's like a huge conflict oh I hate it I can't do anything I can't function if I have to hide Mm -hmm. I'm not good at hiding and I I imagine 
um, you feeling like all the, all the more fear um, because saying saying coming out to an employer or having an employer finding out because it's not just like say then you got fired or say then word got out to everyone before you had time to out yourself yeah it was like the rejection of that it's like rejecting a core part of you it's not just like this thing that you did for a year because it was fun or for whatever other reason for you it was like a real part of your identity whereas if somebody was like no andrea you are not you can't be here that's heavy like that's not just like no you're a stripper once and we can't have that at this company it's like no you yeah so i can imagine how stressful yeah that would be Mm -hmm. yeah it was very um it's a very painful period it was also a period in which i realized like i'm incapable of office work Mm -hmm. i'm incapable of of that type of work nine to five or the nine to six in my case Mm mm-hmm of salaried labor. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. I miss my daytimes. I love working at night. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's just, again, it's me. And that's why for people like me, sex work is so natural because it's flexible. It's well-paying. It's work when you want mm-hmm. and make as much as you want. So let's continue the story then. Yeah. From, uh, so people were like, just escort. And you're like, hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so I had my big realization. So you never worked as a stripper. I at that, at that point, point. At that point, I did not. Yeah. So I, uh, I looked up some agency websites, and I picked the one with the nicest website. Mm-hmm. I sent an email. I never got a response. So I contacted another agency, and they called me immediately and set up an interview. And I was like, okay, all right, fine. And of course, like. What what's an interview with an escort agency? Like I f- I was relying on like weird Hollywood stereotypes. I thought like maybe it would be like oh are they gonna like strip me down and like look at my body? Do I have to look really slutty for this? Like what happens at a an interview with a, an escort agency? But what ended up happening was that I met them at a cafe in my neighborhood. Then there was just too many people around so to talk about stuff. So we just had our interview in their SUV, and it was um, a woman mainly who ran it. Um, she was running it with her partner, and uh, I sat in the back seat. They talked about how it worked. It wasn't so. Why do you think that you'll be good at this job? It was so you've got the job. Mm-hmm. Here's how it works. And I had come with a book a notebook of questions that nice. I've written down and like, I have a million questions to ask you about how this all works. Um, and then basically what types of questions like, uh, condoms, do you provide condoms? Uh, how safe is this? Like what is the likelihood of me catching STIs? Um, what are some of the risks involved here? Am I, am I protected when I go to a call? What is the protocol if I'm in an unsafe situation? Stuff like that. Good for you. Yeah, no, I, I, I wasn't interested in going into it blind because I had the, the luxury and the privilege of not um, entering it without... <laughs> I wasn't surviving. Yeah, like, under, wasn't, under duress. Exactly. Mm. I wasn't... Uh, this wasn't, like, my last resort or anything. This was, like, 
I'm a university student and I'm I'd like to do this work but I'd like a few questions answered first before I do this mm -hmm. because this has a lot of implications for the rest of my life mm -hmm. that's how I saw it so they answered all my questions they gave me a contract and then they were like okay so it's time to choose your escort name wow right there in the right SUV there there. <laughs> and I had been really thinking about it um, I talk about all this in the book um, in the introduction mm -hmm. The introduction's called The Whore's First Words. Um, but I, at the time I was taking this romantic poetry class, and I'd absolutely fall in love with the poet William Blake. And he, this is his wheelhouse, like he talks so much about sexuality and femininity and the oppression of women and, uh, you know, he questions why virginity should be valued even um and does it exist even yeah no, it exactly doesn't. exactly mm. exactly and he's on that i mean and he's writing like late 1700s wow. he's my hero for sure but he has this story about um a marigold and like the marigold is this flower but she kind of she looks like a flower but she also looks like a nymph and she's like this sexy a siren siren basically and someone comes up to her and is like, I want to pluck you, but I don't know if I should pluck you. And she's like, pluck me. Pluck away, baby. Pluck away, because the soul of sweet delight never passes away. Wow. And I thought, like, that's how I want to go into this, this world, this underworld. Um, so I said, Marigold as my name and they were like nah <laughs> and they were like no <laughs> how, about, how about Marianne you look like the one from Gilligan's Island and I was like okay and I, I very quickly was like okay there's the Virgin Mary and her mother's name is, is Anne so I'm like okay double I like it. divinity I like it. power I'm into this okay fine Marianne let's do it my mom's name is Marianne oh my god that's so cute <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a wholesome whore name I, it is it's a wholesome name yeah, yeah. Marianne it's girl next door very girl next door yeah yeah so yeah, and then I did that, and um, they were like, "Well, you could start work tonight." I'm like, "Oh God, I'm oh not God, ready no. for that. <laughs> like, give me some time here." So I started like maybe three days later, mm -hmm. and I was so nervous. What? Yeah, take me through that first oh call, baby. So even before I got picked up, like I had two roommates, one of whom was my ex-boyfriend, mm -hmm. um, the other a good friend of mine, um, and they knew. Mm -hmm. that I was doing my first night of, of whoring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think they'd actually bought me a card. <laughs> it's like, actually kind of... Like, it's actually lovely. It was lovely, but it was like, I opened it up and it was like, you're a whore! <laughs> 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 Which is really funny. It's a good joke. It's good. Showed the cash. <laughs> I think there was a dog on the cover of it. <laughs> and you're like, oh God. Yeah, okay, well thanks. Well thanks, thanks but... <laughs> Um, and I, yeah, I remember I was Thanks, just like, jerks. <laughs> they were jerks, <laughs> but I love them. <laughs> it was a very weird time for the house, um, for the household, the whole household. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I was very nervous, but I like got dressed up. This was December. Mm -hmm. I remember. And what'd you wear? Oh my God. I think. I think I wore this vintage dress I have. It's blue. It goes to the knees. It's a. It's not a fancy dress. It's sort of, a, I think it's polyester. Mm -hmm. 
um, but it, I, I didn't have many dresses. I didn't know. So I just, I, because it was like a favorite dress and I felt like it was classy and the only other time I'd worn it was to a wedding. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is probably the right dress to wear on my first night <laughs> being a whore. So I wore that and like, I couldn't have been sweating more <laughs> than I was. And uh, I got picked up by my madame. She wasn't always the driver, but she said for my first night, she was going to be my driver. And was that the person you met in the car? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, like, I obviously expressed my nervousness to her, and she said, like, just remember one thing about these guys. They're more nervous than you are. Yes. They are the ones that have just called an agency to bring a stranger to their room. Mm -hmm. They have no idea what to expect. They don't know if you're going to look like the person in the pictures. They don't know how this is going to go down for them. So just remember that you're the one who's who's in control here. He's calling the shots. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I felt that almost immediately after my first client opened the hotel room door. You're like, oh, this is my space now. Oh, like this guy's just a total dingus who <laughs> doesn't get laid very often. I can handle this. Yeah. Like, I've dealt with this before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> a couple times in my life, yeah. <laughs> Like, he was, like, a small dude with a lazy eye. Like, <laughs> yeah. I thought it was cute and endearing. And, like, he took my coat, and I remember, like, feeling the dampness under my arms. And uh, he'd been smoking in his room. It was, like, a holiday inn off the highway in like, Milton. And <laughs> he had porn playing, playing on the TV. Okay. And he asked if I wanted to smoke, and I said, no, thank you. Um, and we sat down on the couch and we talked a little bit and I told him this was my first time. He was really? my first client. And really? like, he was so relieved. He was, he was relieved, but more excited because it's almost as if he's taking my whore virginity. Hmm. And you should have charged him double. I know. <laughs> you could have. could have. Hindsight 2020. <laughs> but yeah, it, like as soon as we got on the bed and we started to make out, hmm. I could feel, like, the clunkiness and awkwardness of his movements and realize, like, I'm the person here who's supposed to be... The expert? The expert. I'm taking care of him. This does not make me nervous. In fact, I find this fun. Like, I like accommodating people in that way. So and showing off. And showing off. Yeah. Because I'm like, I'm fucking good at this, yo. <laughs> like, present a dick. I will... <laughs> blow the top off like I'm good I'm good at this stuff mm -hmm. and um, I remember like we did it and I I was just amazed at how much fun I was having and he had this weird quirk where like because I, I'd, I would see him a few times after that mm -hmm. um, where he would leave the hotel room he would say I have to meet somebody so just close the door when you're you're done and I'm pretty sure he was married and he was just going home to his wife. Mm -hmm. But that first time that he did that, and I'm alone in his hotel room, naked, mm -hmm. I go to the, the washroom and I look at myself in the mirror and my hair is all tousled and my makeup is smeared. And I'm looking at myself. I'm like, this is the best. <laughs> this is the best. Andrea, we did it. Like... I, that was so much fun. That was 
wow, oh my God, I'm getting paid for this? Yes, this is, this is a thing people do. This is a thing I can do. I just felt like... That I'm doing now. I, it was as if I'd met that person, finally. Again, in looking story. in the mirror and being like, hi, Andrea, I'm Andrea. Like, I'm, I'm, your, Marianne. I'm Marianne. Hi, Marianne. I'm Andrea. I'm your partner in crime. Let's do this. Yeah. Let's go on an adventure. That's what it felt like. It felt like, you know, I'd responded to the call to adventure, and I was now, I was now in it, and I was ecstatic. I was very happy. I was so happy. And I saw three more guys that night. And, uh... What were... How did those go? One I can't remember. One of them was, like... He was known as the American. Okay. (laughs) And he was at the King Edward Hotel. Uh, on King Street. And... I thought that was... It was so interesting to me because... That's when it hit me that I was talking to like a fully grown human being who exists in the world and has a successful career mm-hmm. and has a lot of knowledge. And I thought mm-hmm. like, what an amazing opportunity for me to talk to people I would never have the opportunity to talk with mm-hmm. and then have sex with them. Mm-hmm. Have this moment, have this connective moment. That lasts a very limited amount of time and then I'm out and I never have to see them again. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, that was, there was so much freedom in that and so much knowledge to be gained in these conversations with people I would never have access to ordinarily. So I was getting so much out of it as someone who has always aspired to be a writer, basically. To me, I felt like I was in the field doing research and wow. collecting characters. Wow. And collecting ways... Stories. And, stories and ways ways people can be human. Because through escorting, oh my god, I met so many interesting people who just run the range of, of everything mm-hmm. and um that was really cool and then the last guy i saw it was another super super positive experience experience where what a like, good day good first day it was a great first day and i felt triumphant by the end of yeah the i was gonna say yeah did you feel uh, by the end of the night did you feel the same way by the end of the night yeah i was like i was very pleased yeah. i was very happy and i but the guy that I saw last that night, I have a story about him in the book. It's mm-hmm. called Precipice. Um, about actually having, like, a, a really strong connection with this person. Mm-hmm. And wanting to see him again, and he never I was going to say me. did either. He no. never. But then I bumped into him in real life. Ooh. And that's the story. Ooh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> you got to buy the book. Yeah, Go if you want to hear the story, you have to buy the book. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, after that, I just was like, I felt, I felt like a fuller human being. I felt so fully myself knowing that, like, I was making a stupid amount of money as, like, a 21-year-old. More than I'd ever made as a barista, you know, showing my cleavage a little bit and smiling and laughing at people's jokes. I realized that there was so little difference between those two jobs, between Mm. customer service people-pleasing work mm-hmm. and and just going straight for the goods because I knew as a barista that these guys were looking at me sexually mm-hmm. and probably just wanted to have sex this, with me. This connective moment, too. Exactly. This flirt, this whatever, this... Yeah, and... Um, talking to a woman. Well, like, you know what? I find that with... Yeah, because I bartend and I serve as well. And it's like, half these people, half these guys just want to talk to a woman for a few minutes tonight. Like, that's... Yes. That's more what this is about. You know what, though? I, I've been thinking about this a lot. It's not... It's not even that they want to talk or that they just want to have sex. 
what they're paying for, whether it's in that sort of situation in a bar where you're working or they're paying for your time um, in a sex work scenario, they're paying for your attention. They want your attention. They want you to listen to them and to devote yourself fully to them for a moment and to be present with them. Mm -hmm. And that's, for me... That's, that's what they're paying for. That's what they're paying for. Mm-hmm. They're paying for me to be fully present with them in that moment in time, whether we're talking to be, or we're having sex. To be just theirs, all theirs for that half hour, hour, whatever it is. Yeah. And, I mean, really, when you think about it, that's a luxury. That is mm-hmm. like, when do we ever in our day-to-day lives get to talk to someone without them at some point pulling out their phone, their phone and, and doing or something their, else? Yeah, yeah. Or running into another person and start chatting to them. Yeah, anything. So, where their focus is divided. Yeah. To me, that makes sense as, as if you recognize the value in, in being that. with somebody who's fully present with you, I don't see why you shouldn't pay for it. Mm-hmm. And, and if, you know, I'm the kind of person that if that's, if that's what somebody wants and I'm in a position to give that to them for a price. Then why not? Well, then why not? Yeah. I don't see why not. And I don't see why, you know, I would take sex out of the equation because sometimes when you are fully present with someone... That's where things go. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that about sex work because it's not very often it was it was not sex off the top. It was conversation off the top. Mm-hmm. It was getting to know each other and getting comfortable and making each other laugh and, and engaging and get, engaging finding the things that connect us so that the sex isn't mechanical. Because I never had mechanical sex. I know when we think about sex work conventionally, we, there's no we don't have a framework to think of it as something that's a little bit more um, human. Mm-hmm. To yes. humans having sex with each yeah, other. Yeah, I was thinking like yeah, I was thinking like emotive. Emotive yes. for sure. Yeah, and and the conversation really sets up that that emotive connection, mm-hmm. so that when you're having sex with each other, there's like there's motivation to pleasure the other, and yeah. there's curiosity to see what you're doing. Uh, to see if it's it's affecting the other person and and it becomes this like playful almost childlike adventure with another person with another human and those are special moments that that everyone everyone cherishes everyone cherishes and we do not often get for Mm -hmm. free yes yeah that we're often lacking incredibly and if if someone is the kind of person who recognizes that that is something they need to be then happy. fucking power to them. Exactly. Pay for it. Mm-hmm. Pay your local Tip sex her. worker. Yeah. Tip her. Because she's doing a good service for you. Mm-hmm. And it's important work. It's important work to do be you, present. Yeah. Do you feel like a healer sometimes? Yes. Did you? Did you? Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Oh, that was like definitely a part of it. Mm-hmm. Like I felt like it was not, it was often not a strictly physical need mm-hmm. that these people had and, and wished to have fulfilled it was, bigger, it was something bigger than deeper that. it was way deeper than that mm. yeah cut to two years later mm-hmm. why did you get out of full-time sex work well in order to get there i have to go back a year okay <laughs> so um a year into being an escort i graduated university mm-hmm. and Six months prior to that, I had told my mom and my dad what I was doing. And, like, it nearly destroyed my mother. My dad was like, whatever, fine. You're smart. You'll be okay. You'll, you can handle it. You can handle it. And if anyone tries to hurt you, I will beat the living shit out of them. And I was like, thanks, I got dad. your back, daddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
great. Um, but yeah, so that devastated her. And then six months later, I graduate university and my, my mom is there. My dad is there. My brother is there. And my boyfriend is there. Mm -hmm. And all of these people know that I'm currently working as a sex worker. Mm -hmm. Um, and as soon as we get our asses into the seats Mm -hmm. at the, at the table at Hemingway's, my mom says, so when are you going to quit that job of yours? And I realized that I have to make a very quick decision right then and there because I've like got the awkward adverting eyes of everyone at the table. Expecting you expecting to say, me to like, now, tonight, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yesterday. Yeah, for you. For you guys. Um, and I, I guess I should mention that this is after the graduation, we're having lunch um, at Hemingway's. But yeah, <laughs> so I, I, I say, okay, I'll quit by my next birthday, which was another year. Hmm. And she says, great, I'll get that in writing. So I wrote out a contract to my mom that night with an exact date of when I'd be quitting escorting. And she said, all right, I'll hold you to that. And I was like, okay, I have one more year left then. Live it up. And I, at that point, because I I knew that I only had a year left, I became extremely diligent with recording everything that was happening and mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. all the money I was making, where that money was going, having financial goals, um, you know, an amount that I wanted to see. You had a plan now. I you had a one year plan for yourself now. Yeah. So make the most of it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Including yeah, yeah. like, um, all the clients that I saw oh. and notes about the experiences. So then that way I was actually able to calculate how many men I had slept with in, in two years. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> hundreds of men hundreds hundreds, oh, hundreds. hondos yeah and um and so in that way it was really good and, and they often that's a, a suggestion from people in the sex industry is that it's important to have an exit strategy mm-hmm. that's what that's called mm-hmm. so that you can work towards a goal specifically and you're not just kind of floating around without a plan sex work is the kind of work where you should have a plan mm-hmm. um so yeah, then yeah. And then did you? I stayed you stick true to, to it. Yeah. I stayed true to it because my mom made you. <laughs> my mom made me, but also because she she chose to love me after all that because I destroyed her. I fucked her up with that information and I saw it because when I told her it looked as if I had shot her. Mm. She slumped. Mm. She turned pale. Like this was nobody wants to hear that their daughter is a prostitute. Mm-hmm. Not was a prostitute, is yes. a prostitute. And will be for the next year. Exactly. <laughs> says this contract. Yeah, and but then she... But did she remain that way the whole time? Well, the thing is that the... Did she get used to it? Did she... she it took her a long Come time. around? Like... She took her a long time to come around. I think... That contract was a seminal moment in our relationship where we started to build up again because mm-hmm. unt- at, at that point, like, she would send me tearful calls in the middle of the night, mm. you know, saying, what if you get AIDS? And then she would be, sometimes she would be angry mm. and she'd feel humiliated by the, the information because inevitably this, this reflects on her. That's how she As feels. a mother. As a mother. You know, and she'd say stuff like, well, why did I pay for you, your university education when you could have just dropped out in grade seven to become a whore? You know, stuff like that. Oh, man. And I was able to see that she was coming from a place of extreme hurt. She felt very hurt by this. Mm-hmm. 
And then one day she... Hurt people, hurt people. Exactly, I know. Like, and that's so, so, so true. Mm. And I was thankfully able to detach and see that. Good for you. Um, But it was a very, very painful time. But I I would do certain things to, like, help her um, get used to it Mm. or understand it a little bit more. We would talk about it a lot. Mm -hmm. I took her to... um, uh, the Ann Johnston Health Station, which is where I, I see the nurses, and I've been seeing the nurses for the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, ta- I talk to them very openly about my sex work. I got tested every month for STIs. Um, so I asked one of the nurses if I could bring my mom in so that she could talk to my mom about what the actual risks were. And um, so we did that. And I remember the she was driving me somewhere after that, that experience. And, and she said she did feel a little bit better, mm-hmm. but she said, you know, what, what do I say when my, my friends at work ask me how you're doing? I can't tell them the truth. If I told them, they'd all laugh at me. And that was the moment I realized, like, this is such a primal fear we have, um, as people that people are going to laugh at us mm-hmm. and we're going to be humiliated by them. Mm-hmm. And, I just, I had to give my mom that space to feel to those feel things that way. And, mm. and to get through it. And it was very important to me that because she was willing to do the work, she was willing to go talk to a nurse with me. She was willing to talk to me, even if at some points she would lash out because she was hurt. Because she was willing to do the work. She's trying, at least. And loved me. I still knew that she loved me through all of this. She didn't throw me out, like, not, she I, I didn't kick live you at out. home. She didn't kick me out of the family or anything like that. She didn't, she didn't divorce you. She didn't divorce yeah. me. Yeah. She loved me through all of that. Even though I'd done something that had hurt her so badly, I had to commit to that, that contract. Mm-hmm. And I could see that she, she thought, she had said it, like, you know, that you commit to this makes me trust you. And, and shows that you're an honest person. Shows your character. Shows your character. So, yeah, it was very important for me to adhere to that so mm-hmm. that we can build our relationship back up. And she was the one, like, I, you know, I'd say to her, you know, Mom, I want to be an activist for sex workers. Mm-hmm. And she's like, activism is boring. Why don't you, like, write a play about it? <laughs> Why don't you do something that's, like, entertaining for people? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's yeah, not a bad idea. I mean, I could do activism through my mm-hmm. art. Through work. And yeah, the... so, like, my mom was a big part of modern, modern horror, horror. For sure. Like, and to know that I had her love and support um, once it was all over with was, like, that's huge. Because I think most sex workers, they don't come out to their parents. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember my, my madame was like... Uh, I don't know anyone who's ever, ever done that. You're wow. crazy. Wow. She said she would she would flip out at, at her own daughter wow. if she found out. Interesting. Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting response. Hmm. Um, but so, yeah. So, an hour into the interview, we gotta talk about the book. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the book. <laughs> it's what you're, you're not looking forward to the most. You've, you've been hustling, hustle, hustle hard, honey. Oh, yeah. About this book. Uh-huh. You've been talking about this on a lot of platforms, right? Yeah. But just give us the, give us the tea on where, where people can get it, generally what they're, where, what they're getting out of it. Okay. Well, 
Um, well, so Modern Horror is a book. It's a, it's my memoir. Mm-hmm. Of Your sex work memoir. My sex work memoir. Mm-hmm. So it's got 27 stories, short stories, that include, uh, so it's, it's sex work memoir, but it's also stories from my childhood that I, I think may serve as interesting precedents for me um, for having chosen sex work. Yes. Um, but it's also got some fiction, and it's got fairy tale as well. Great. Um, about a brothel in heaven. <laughs> which I, I had to put in because I thought it was so funny. Um, and, but then in conjunction with all those stories, Modern Horror is also an art book, and it's filled with more than 60, 60 pictures taken by my collaborator, Nicole Bazoin. Um, and, like, she's taken amazing pictures based on the stories. Like, this is a beautiful it's book. It's a beautiful book, and it's been yeah. designed by... Um, a woman named Laura Royas. Mm-hmm. The book is like a, it's a stunning, stunning book. Mm-hmm. And it's the three of us have basically created this together on our own. Um, we've received some input from uh, our publisher, Impulse B, mm-hmm. who we are publishing the book um, with. We're co publishing it with them. Uh, Nicole and I have our own business mm-hmm. called Virgin Twins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's a name we thought of really quickly. So first thing we thought of. (laughs) We're co-publishing this book because we've done a lot of, like you said, a lot of the hustling ourselves. Yes. And uh, Impulse B has provided like invaluable uh, assistance and um, insight into how all of this works. Um, But yeah, the pictures are stunning. Nicole's photography is amazing. The pictures are. Of me in various states of undress. Many of them are nude. Mm. Uh, some are flattering. Some are deliberately unflattering. <laughs> nice. But just to like, because this book isn't just about how like bubblegum positive sex work is. Because yeah. it's not. I was As raised you... twice, you know? Like these are yeah. not like funny. As you said, there's an advocacy element to it. 100%. And, yes. And my main prerogative as a sex work activist is to help people relate to sex workers and recognize our shared humanity. Yeah, see themselves the, in the book and in you and exactly. other and the, women that do this type of work. And the absolute injustice that we should have in, in almost every society around the world, this group of people that it's okay to abuse. Yes. It's okay to uh, assault rape and murder a prostitute like sex workers get very little help from police Police. enforcement because our industry is criminalized why the hell is it criminalized Mm -hmm. we need to decriminalize it treat sex work as a real job Mm -hmm. and see sex workers as real people yeah sex work is real work exactly and to me the way that i can most effectively do that with my skill set is to tell my stories yeah and to shed light on it, both the positive and the negative, because I'm not here to glamorize sex work. Um, You've had a mostly positive experience. Exactly. Like any job, you know, sometimes you're going to have good experiences and you're going to have bad experiences, good days and bad days. Yeah. Um, and rape, assault is a reality of every woman's life. I'm exactly. sorry, no matter what job she's working. Yeah, there's so so many stereotypes that we need to confront about um just being a woman in general, mm-hmm. I, I feel like this is this is the forefront and the foremost feminist issue of our time. Mm-hmm. I really, really do believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, the way we treat 
sex workers and the the matter of them being sexually assaulted or sexually abused in any way the way we treat that because some people think that how can you rape a sex worker exactly you know if a sex worker is putting herself in a vulnerable dangerous position i mean isn't she kind of asking for it no nobody's asking nobody is ever asking for it fucking idiot exactly is is somebody who is working as a bank teller at a bank asking to be robbed you know no yeah I mean, you could. There's so many examples about how that logic is absolutely so, so bad, so, so wrong, so faulty. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's. Those are the the things that mainly concern me is that we need to see sex workers as human beings mm-hmm. first and foremost, and then as workers as well. Mm-hmm. And this book is going to be in print in amazing, gorgeous, glossy print yeah. in November. We hope November. I mean, the book yep. launch might actually be December, maybe even January. I don't know. Because the time of this uh, recording, you just finished your Kickstarter, which you reached your goal yes. for all your printing needs. Yes. Yes. Which is very exciting. So we it's raised... happening very soon. It's happening. It's, ha- it, we it's are, happening. We're getting a book. Yeah. We raised fifteen thousand, <laughs> more than $15,000, mm-hmm. thankfully. Um, so the book is definitely getting printed. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's just a matter of distributors. You were saying, yeah. yeah, getting it in stores. Yeah. So fucking holler at me. <laughs> yeah. Holler at us. Yes. About absolutely. it. We already got one hookup for you, which we may not reveal right now, but, Ooh, but we've already got it in one store, but wink. let's get it in more. Shall we? Let's get it in more. Uh, Andrea. Okay. Tell us all the social media stuff we need to know about modern horror. Okay. So you can follow modern horror at modern horror on uh, twitter and on instagram uh we also have a facebook page it's modern horror minus the e because horror is considered a swear word on facebook oh really <laughs> yeah oh my god uh, yeah we couldn't we couldn't do the full word so that's <laughs> modern <laughs> w-h-o-r uh on facebook um you can follow me i'm at wiener woman on instagram w-e-e-n-e-r w-o-m-a-n and um, I'm also on Twitter as Andrea Warehan. And that's yeah. a story, Morning Glory. Yep. Andrea. Eric! <laughs> we did it! We did it! Number 100! <laughs> Number 100, baby! From 13 to 100. <laughs> Andrea, honestly, this has been such a pleasure. Oh. I'm so happy we could do this. I love you, Andrea. I love you, Andrea. <laughs> Everybody, one last time. This is Andrea Warehan, and I'm Erin Pym. And this has been the 100th episode of the Bedpost Podcast. <laughs> Check back weekly, everybody, because we release a new episode every single Friday. And if you want to rate and review the podcast while you're on iTunes, while you're there, oh, I would love it and love you. If you're in Toronto and want to see Bedpost Live, the Broadway Stage Show runs at the Social Capital Theatre the third Friday of every month at 8. For more information on everything Bedpost, please visit us at our website, bedpost.ca. And if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, or nudes, shoot me an email at thebedpostsexshow at gmail.com. Lastly, the Bedpost podcast features original music by Steph Copeland, who can be reached at her website, stephcopelandmusic.com.